Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And I'm going to read to you for half an hour. Not only in the soul of the frightened but ecstatically happy Natasha, but throughout the entire household there was a feeling of awed anticipation, as if something of great moment were about to take place. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and other audio oddities we find all over the world. It's a celebration of the best audio being produced on the air and the internet. Character development is really good, but I can't really say what it was, what it really was about. I mean, war and peace. <laughs> but otherwise. Tolstoy's War and Peace has been called the best book ever written. The best book ever ever written. Quite a claim. But still the question remains, who has actually read it? I have not read War and Peace. War and Peace. I've considered it. With 580 characters and well over a thousand pages, not a whole lot of people. Well, in 1970, one radio producer in one station in one city thought that War and Peace should be brought to the masses. Kathy Dobkin was a jack-of-all-trades at WBAI Radio in New York City, host, receptionist, active in the drama and literature department, when she led a station-wide effort to produce what was then the longest continuous broadcast in radio history. Five straight days, 24 hours a day of an unabridged reading of War and Peace. It featured an astonishing group of readers, including some of the most eminent writers, actors, and artists of the day. A couple of years ago, Brian DeShazer of the Pacifica Radio Archives and producer Christopher Sprinkle decided to celebrate this landmark radio event by producing the documentary we're going to hear today on ReSound. It's called The War and Peace Broadcast, 35 Years Later. In December of 1970, more than 170 people from all walks of life came together to read one of the great novels of all time. Here is Alexandra Tolstoy reading the first page of her father's novel from the original text. Eh bien, mon prince, Jeanne et Luc ne sont plus que des apanages. My name is Dustin Hoffman, and I am reading book one, part This one. is Buck Henry reading chapters 20 and 20. This is Richard Avedon reading pages 141. This is Joseph Heller 
Reading pages 100. This is Elsa Knight Thompson. My name is Barbara Oka. This is Grandma Dottie. This is Faye Ray. This is Anne Dunnigan, translator of War and Peace. This is a Blue Gabriel reading part three. This is Thomas Stewart. My name is Robert Moss. This is Freddie Dundee. This is Diane Serber. I'm Alison Steele of WNEW FM, and I'm delighted to be here at WBAI. My name is Sheldon Harnick. I'm a lyricist for the theater. My I'm name reading. is Marvin Kitman. Mitch Miller, number 33, book one, part three, chapters 13 and 14, pages... This is Theodore Bickell. I shall be reading... Uh, this is William F. Buckley, Jr., reading pages 9 23. This is Mel Brooks. This is Julius Luster. This is Margot Adler of WB. This is Pete Seeger, reading pages... Anne Bancroft, pages 1389... This is Morris Karnofsky. In the present case, it is similarly necessary to renounce a freedom that does not exist and to recognize a dependence of which we are not conscious. Nearly five days later, the legendary actor Morris Karnofsky read the famous last words to Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, ending what was at the time the longest continuous broadcast in radio history. The station was New York's WBAI, part of the Pacifica Radio Network. The date, December 6, 1970. I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. In June 2005, while doing a much-needed inventory, I was going through a shelf of uncatalogued reels. On one, I saw Anne Bancroft's name written on the spine, and next to it was another box, and another after that, with names like Dustin Hoffman, Richard Avedon, Joseph Heller, and legendary Pacifica producer Elsa Knight Thompson. And then I saw the words, War and Peace. These were the tapes of one of the most ambitious broadcasts ever, with one of the largest casts. It enthralled all of New York City as it went nonstop day after day. News media wrote about the event, and listeners struggled to stay awake so as not to miss anything. They emptied store shelves of the book throughout the city and gathered to talk about Natasha, Pierre, Napoleon, and his tragic mistakes. During the height of the Vietnam War, when the country was so bitterly divided, the War and Peace broadcast, if only for a few days, brought together Republicans and Democrats, hippies and yippies, veterans and protesters, friends and foe. Princess Ellen smiled. She rose with that same unchanging smile, the smile of a perfectly beautiful woman with which she had entered the drawing room. There was a slight rustle of her morse and ivy-trimmed ball gown, a gleam of diamonds, lustrous hair, and dazzling white shoulders as she moved toward Anna Pavlovna. Passing between the men who made way for her, not looking directly at any of them, but smiling on all as if graciously granting them the privilege of admiring her beautiful figure, her shapely shoulders, back, and bosom, which in the fashion of the day were very much exposed, she seemed to bring with her the glamour of the ballroom. Ellen was so lovely that not only did she show no trace of coquetry, but on the contrary appeared to be almost embarrassed by her undeniable, irresistible, and enthralling beauty. It was as if she wished to diminish its effect while being powerless to do so. That was August Heckscher, reading from the first few pages of War and Peace. The person who came up with this idea worked in WBAI's drama and literature department on some days, at the switchboard on others, and even hosted her own show on Russian music on other days. Her name is Kathy Dopkin. This is Kathy in an interview from 1970. I happened to be reading something one day that said, 
that the final volume of War and Peace was sent to the publishers on December 4th of 1869. And this gave me the idea that till December 4th of 1970, this is the year of the uh, centennial of its publication. She presented the idea to station management in the form of a memo. September 28th, 1970. To Bill Henderson and Milton Hoffman, from Kathy, regarding Read the Memo. An absolutely brilliant idea occurred to me over the weekend. Tolstoy's War and Peace was completed, at least the first draft, on December 4, 1869. Therefore, this is the hundredth anniversary of this novel, which many have called the greatest book ever written. How about a marathon reading of it, to go on continuously, and to be done a la the settee vexations with relay readers, using our staff and our listeners to come and read for half an hour or for a chapter, etc.? I figure at 24 hours a day, interrupted occasionally by music, not necessarily Russian, we can do it between Friday primetime and Monday primetime. What you think? Kathy Dobkin. This was going to be a huge project, primarily because, as Kathy said, Originally, my idea was to have it done live, because it seemed neat. <laughs> if each reader read approximately 10 pages, they would need to be at least 146 readers to get through the 1,455 pages. Almost immediately, Kathy's neat idea was modified to pre-record as many people as possible. One of Kathy Dopkin's biggest supporters was WBAI's drama and literature director, Milton Hoffman. In 1970, during an interview with Kathy, he explained to her his excitement for the project. Uh, when you approached me with the idea, uh, as you said, I was very enthusiastic, and I think that one of the main reasons uh, is that it's, uh, it was the chance to create a very unique radio event and to utilize the freedom that we have at WBAI. The, the place, you know, WBAI exists because we can do things that no one else can do. And I felt that this would make a very exciting radio event, as I said, as well as, as, well as using something, using our freedom, because as we know, freedom doesn't mean anything unless you really try to use it. With Milton on board, the project began to pick up speed. Management was willing to give them several days to do the reading, but instead of using anonymous volunteers and readers, it was suggested they try to bring in some name people. They had barely two months to do the entire project, and they had no idea how to contact celebrities, so they decided to let it be known publicly that they needed readers. Once again, Kathy Dopkin. There was an item that made the press saying they heard that WBAI had a crazy idea they were going to read all of War and Peace, and I think it said they were looking for actors. We started getting calls, and the press just got hold of it and went with it. But it became an important, such an important event that I think the station really began to back us. One of the people they convinced to read was Dustin Hoffman. Again, Milton Hoffman, no relation. I went to Dustin Hoffman's office, which was on the east side of New York, not far from the old WBAI. That's where we actually recorded. He didn't come in, and this was a little office. I remember his first wife was there, and she wasn't sure he should be doing this. But it was clear that you know he, he wanted to make this a good, a good reading. He slunk to the floor, got the book out, and never looked up, just read. It was wonderful. Eh bien, mon cher, your little princess is very nice, very nice, said the Viscount after seating himself beside a bullet in the carriage. Very nice indeed. Kissed the tips of his fingers. And quite French. 
People that snickered burst out laughing. And you know, you're a terrible fellow with that innocent way of yours, continued the Viscount. I pity the poor husband, that little officer who gives himself the airs of a reigning prince. People <laughs> that snickered once more, through his laughter, retorted, <laughs> and you said our Russian ladies couldn't compare with your French ladies. One must know how to tackle them. There were two people in particular that Kathy Dopkin absolutely had to have included in this reading. One was Morse Karnofsky. The other was Leo Tolstoy's daughter, Alexandra. Alexandra was an amazing person in her own right, who, after immigrating to the United States, founded the Tolstoy Foundation. Here is Victoria Wolson, the current executive director of the Tolstoy Foundation, speaking about Alexandra. She was very concerned to make sure that both educational needs, health concerns, and cultural preservation and ability to view things from a open perspective were propagated and continued along after her father's death in 1910. As I mentioned earlier, she was uh, his... Um, effectively his secretary and his confidant. So she was really infused with the ideas and ideals of humanitarian work. We found out that she was in Valley Cottage. I sent her a letter asking her to read. She wrote back that she was ill. I sent her another letter saying that we would come there, we would do anything. She said, well, she just broke her arm. I wrote, we badgered her. I just kept pushing and pushing. And finally, she said, and I have the letter, well, maybe you guys could come out to Valley Cottage. Only she said it with a very thick Russian accent. Bob Kuttner, who was program director, had a little red Corvette, or the equivalent, little red sports car. And he decided that he would drive Milton and me out to Valley Cottage in the little red Corvette. There were only two seats in the front, so Bob is sitting in the driver's seat. I'm sitting on Milton's lap with the tape recorders and the War, the War and Peace books, which we have here. And we drove a little more, and we entered a little 19th century Russian village with peasants tilling the soil, and Alexandra in her house in front of all of her father's books behind a glass cabinet with her arm in a sling. And she read her favorite passage. We asked her what she wanted to read. The next reader is Alexandra Tolstoy, who will read pages 335 to 344 of her father's novel, War and Peace. At 8 o'clock, Kutuzov rode to Pratsen at the head of Miloradovich's fourth column, the one that was to replace Brzezewski's and Langeron's columns, which had already descended the hill. He greeted the men in the foremost regiment and gave the command to advance, thereby indicating that he intended to lead the column himself. On reaching the village of Pratsen, he halted. Prince Andrei was behind him, among the immense number of men comprising the commander-in-chief's suit. You know, when I met Alexander Tolstoy, I thought, yeah, I say my father, I mean Alexander Dobkin, and Milton says his father. When she says her father, she's speaking of him, of him. She was the youngest daughter. She was with him when he died. And I had read about her my entire life, and this was her dad. Now, he wasn't much of a dad from what I've read, but to be in the same room with Alexandra Tolstoy was absolutely, for me, mind-boggling. It was an astonishing feeling. 
By this point, Kathy and Milton were bringing in volunteers to help them edit tape. Using razor blades and splicing tape, with that many readers, they needed a team of people working on cleaning up the reads and timing them out and helping them with the schedule. In walks this person, this Francie Camper. There was something about her that kind of struck us. And she seemed smart, and she had this glint in her eye. But she was volunteering. She was a kid. She was a little tiny girl, for God's sake. I went to work as a volunteer at WBAI in 1968 at age 14 in order to cut school. You know, you, it was really a place where you could come up with a, a creative, innovative idea, and if it, if it had any substance at all to it, the attitude was, yeah, go ahead and do it. And in that kind of atmosphere, an idea gathers so much momentum and so much energy in a, in a positive sense, and then everybody, you know, you, you always want to be part of something that, that has those elements. With Francie Camper editing all the reads, the momentum seemed to push them daily to new ideas and new ways to have fun with this. At that point, I think we could get back to the original idea of this being a reading of, by, and for the people. We had enough celebrities on board. Certainly, Bob Kuttner and the station was sold on the idea. We were becoming increasingly, I think, aware that we were onto something. And then, Kathy would come up, every day we'd go into the station and Kathy or Milton would come up with some idea like, let's get a New York City telephone operator. And that was, that was, we did that. Let's get a New York City police officer. Let's look up and see if anybody has the name War and Peace. <laughs> and, um, and we got the construction, one of the construction workers who was helping to build the church, the new WBAI studios at that point. And so it was this conglomerate of very well-known and sort of intimidating people who the switchboard operator was thrilled to be screening these calls, and people from the Bronx who would speak about, you know, Natasha and the war. And, and for those of you who are unimpressed by big names, they'll also be among many, many others. A Bronx High School student, New York City police sergeant, a drummer from the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, the foreman from the construction crew that worked on WBAI's new studios, the architect who drew up the designs for WBAI's new studios, representatives from United Nations embassies and consulates, the typesetter of the WBAI folio, secretaries, housewives, businessmen and women, unknown actors, unknown actresses. WBAI staff members, board members and volunteers. WBAI subscribers, family, friends, and enemies of all of the above. Truck drivers, telephone operators, and salesmen. Weekend golfers, translators, typists, anchormen, doctors, lawyers, teachers, and many, many more. No matter who they called and asked to read, it seemed anyone was willing to spend an hour with them reading from the paperback Signet Classic Edition. Uh, so I think you just given the chance to speak Tolstoy's words and knowing that it has some life beyond that moment, uh, I think just sort of had this chemistry and I think that's the chemistry that, that sort of carried us all the way through, which is that you, know, you really did build on these experiences and it was fun. Each one of these people was a lot of fun, but it was also just the beauty of listening to the words being spoken sincerely. And talking about the words, I think we have to mention that the book we read from, the Signet Paperback, 
was translated by Anne Dunnigan, and the important thing about it was that it was the first American translation. It had been published just two years before, around the same time as the Soviet film came out, and we contacted, and I, I remember when it came out, I read it and was just bowled over by it, because until then, I think the only translation that was read in English before that was Constance Garnett, which was a very Victorian, very good for its time, but it was an old-fashioned translation. And Anne Dunnigan's was just breathtaking and open and shed whole new light on some of the words, albeit in, in English translation. And I forget if we contacted her or if she contacted us, but she soon became a very good friend. And she was very helpful and very supportive, and we all went out to dinner. And she was wonderful all the way. She was an amazing person. And I think I think what, you know, her translation really does account for a lot of that joy that that happened during this, because no one, I don't think any of the readers, and obviously we have this great range of readers, but I don't think any of them felt the text was odd or difficult or of another time. They really, it felt the language was right for 1970, and, you know, she deserves all the credit for that. This is Anne Donegan, translator of War and Peace. Prince Andre went to dine at the Rostovs and spent the rest of the day there. Everyone in the house realized on whose account he had come, and Prince Andre, making no secret of it, tried to be with Natasha the whole time. Not only in the soul of the frightened but ecstatically happy Natasha, but throughout the entire household there was a feeling of awed anticipation, as if something of great moment were about to take place. The countess looked with sad and sternly serious eyes at Prince Andre when he talked to Natasha, and timidly started some artificial inconsequential conversation as soon as he looked her way. Sonia was afraid to leave Natasha and afraid of being in the way if she stayed with her. Natasha turned pale in a panic of expectation every time she was left alone with him for a moment. Prince Andre surprised it was, in the end, the power of the idea and just the appealing quality of it, that there was, there was no other agenda. We weren't trying to do anything except have this great celebration of this great book. And mostly, when you'd get people on the phone, they'd say yes, simply because everybody thought it sounded like fun. And I just want to say, I think it could not have happened without being at Pacifica. This is an event that is, in terms of broadcasting, that is only Pacifica. There is no other way it could have happened, no other set of circumstances that, that led up to it. And as I said, I think it really is historically important that we invented the marathon broadcast. This is Carolyn Goodman, chairman of the board of WBAI, and I'm going to start this reading of Tolstoy's War and Peace by reading chapters 1 and 2, pages 29 to 37. Eh bien, mon prince, so Genoa and Luca are now no more than family estates of the Bonapartes. No, I warn you, if you don't say that this means war, if you still permit yourself to condone all the infamies, all the atrocities of this Antichrist, and that's what I really believe he is, I will have nothing more to do with you. You are no longer my friend, my faithful slave, as you say. But how do you do? How do you do? I see that I am frightening you. Sit down and tell me all about it. 
With these words, the renowned Anna Pavlovna Shera, lady-in-waiting and confidant to the Empress Maria Fyodorovna, greeted Prince Vasily, a man of high rank and office who was first to arrive at her soiree on a July evening in the year 1805. I'm Shirley Knight, and I'm reading a book one, chapter six, pages 53 to 56. Forgive me for saying so, but you have no sense about women. What an argumentative fellow you are, Monsieur Pierre. I'm still arguing with your husband. I can't understand why he wants to go to war, said Pierre, with none of the restraint common to young men in the presence of a young woman. The princess started. Evidently, Pierre's words touched her to the quick. Oh, that's exactly what I say. I don't understand it. I simply do not understand why men can't get along without war. How is it we women don't want such a thing, have no need for it? Now, you shall be the judge. I keep telling him. Here he is, uncle's aide-de-camp. A most brilliant position. He's so well-known, so highly esteemed. The other day, at the Apraxins, I heard a lady asking, Is that the famous Prince André? On my word of honor, she laughed. That's how he's received everywhere. He might easily become an aide-de-camp to the emperor. You know the emperor spoke most graciously to him. And Ed and I were talking about how easily it might be arranged. What do you think? Pierre glanced at Prince André, and, observing that the conversation was displeasing to him, made no reply. My name is Dustin Hoffman, and I'm reading Book One, Part One, of uh, Mel Brooks's translation of War and Peace, and reading uh, chapters five and six. Pierre regarded himself as the model of perfection. He was always amazed at Prince André's easy demeanor with people in every walk of life, his extraordinary memory, his erudition. He had read everything, knew everything, had an opinion on everything, and above all, had his capacity for work and study. And if he was often struck by André's incapacity for the sort of speculative philosophizing to which he himself was particularly addicted, he considered it not so much a defect as a sign of strength. Even in the best, the simplest, and most friendly relations, Flattery and praise are as necessary as the oiling of wheels to keep them running smoothly. I'm done for, said Prince Henri. Why talk about me? Let us talk about you. He resumed after a momentary silence, smiling at his own reassuring thoughts. His smile was instantly reflected on Pierre's face. What's there to say about me? Pierre said, his lips parted in a carefree, merry smile. <laughs> I'm a bastard. And he suddenly blushed crimson. It had obviously required a great effort for him to say this without name or fortune, and it, and it really is. But he did not say what it really was. For the present, I am free, and I'm all right, but only I, I have no idea what to take up. I've wanted seriously to consult you. Prince Andre looked at him with kindly eyes, but in his glance, friendly and affectionate as it was, expressed a consciousness of his own superiority. I'm very fond of you, especially as you are the one live person in our entire circle. It was a very personal experience. I was in college. And, uh, Professor Andrew Kaufman. I somehow ended up in this course, which was a survey of 19th century Russian literature. And one of the first things we read was this huge book called War and Peace, which I had never you know, I'd heard of, but I'd never read before. And this character of Pierre was absolutely inspiring to me, how this... Pierre at the beginning of the novel is very awkward. He doesn't fit in socially. He's trying to find his place in life. 
Tolstoy just writes with such a tenderness and an honesty about this particular character, and I could relate to that because that was me back at the age of 21. That was exactly what I was going through in my life as a young college student who had moved. You know, I was a country bumpkin from Michigan. I was like, you know, I was thrown into this East I went to Amherst College in Massachusetts, and this was an environment, a culture that I just was very unfamiliar to me, and I felt completely out of place, and I was really searching for who I was and what my place was. Well, that's the story of Pierre. And so my first encounter with, with Tolstoy and my first attraction to him was a very personal uh, a very personal one. I saw my own struggles being reflected in the struggles of his characters, and it was that that made me realize that Tolstoy really is more than just a great writer. He's a, he's a teacher of life and he's as relevant today uh, as he was uh, when he lived. And that's, that's the point that I try to make with my students. Find your personal connection with these Tolstoy characters because each of us has much of or parts of all these characters in us. Um, that's the magic of Tolstoy. This is Alex Desaire. I'm reading pages 229 to 233. Prince Bagration, having reached the highest point of our right flank, began riding downhill to where the roll of gunfire was heard, but where nothing could be seen on account of the smoke. The nearer they got to the hollow, the less they could see, but the more they felt the nearness of the actual battlefield. They commenced meeting the wounded. One with a bloody head and no cap was being dragged along by two soldiers who supported him under the arms. He was wheezing and spitting. The bullet had evidently hit him in the mouth or the throat. Another, without his musket, stout-heartedly walked alone, groaning and waving a wounded arm from which the blood poured over his great coat as from a bottle. His face expressed more fear than pain. He had been wounded only a moment before. After crossing a road, they descended a steep incline on which they saw several men lying on the ground. They also met a crowd of soldiers, some of whom had not been wounded. The soldiers were ascending the hill, breathing heavily, and in spite of seeing the general, were talking loudly and gesticulating. Rows of gray greatcoats were now visible through the smoke, and an officer, catching sight of Bagration, rushed after the crowd of retreating soldiers, shouting orders to them to come back. Bagration rode up to the line, along which there was a rapid crackle of gunfire, now in one place, now in another, drowning the sound of voices and the shouts of command. The air was completely permeated with smoke. The excited faces of the soldiers were blackened with gunpowder. Some were driving in their ramrods, others putting powder on the pans or taking charges out of their pouches while others were firing, though whom they were firing at could not be seen for the smoke which the wind did not lift. And dismounted. He gave the reins to a Cossack, took off his burqa, and handed it to him, then stretched his legs and set his cap straight. The head of the French column, its officers leading, appeared from below the hill. Forward with God, pronounced Bagration, in a clear, firm voice, and turned for a moment to the front line. Then, with an awkward gait of a cavalryman, slightly swinging his arms and moving as if with an effort, he walked forward over the rough field. Prince André felt that some unseen power was leading him forward, and he experienced a great happiness. The French were now drawing near. Walking beside Bagration, Prince André could now make out their bandoliers, red epaulettes, and even their faces. He clearly saw one old French officer in gaiters, who, 
with feet placed sideways and holding on to the bushes, climbed the hill with difficulty. Prince Bagration gave no further orders and continued to walk in silence in front of the ranks. Suddenly, a shot rang out from among the French, then another and a third, and all through their broken ranks there was smoke and the crackle of gunfire. Several of our men fell, among them the round-faced officer who had marched so buoyantly and complacently. But the, at the very instant of the first report, Bagration looked back and cried, Hurrah! Hurrah! The prolonged shout echoed down the line as our men, overtaking Prince Progression and running past one another in a confused but eager, joyous crowd, rushed down the hill at their disordered foe. This is the end of chapter 18. That last section was read by Alex Munsell, one of WBAI's most loyal subscribers and friends. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to the remarkable story of what happened in 1970, a five-day continuous broadcast of the reading of Tolstoy's War and Peace on WBAI Radio in New York City. Write your own tone and then mail it to us. All questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Now, let's get back to our show. One of the things that happened as soon as we started broadcasting was the impact around the city. Because we did feel like there were an awful lot of people who were very good readers. And I think it's one of the interesting things, too, that while it was the idea that did work, if you actually listen to the tapes, the vast majority of the readers are very good. And I think it's because they, you know, they felt like they were, you know, this is like your chance to be part of something terrific. And I think people read better, you know, for that reason, and they seemed to care. But that, I think once it started, and you'd go to delis and hear War and Peace on, and you go to barbershops and you'd hear War and Peace on, and you think you're exaggerating. You know, that's the sense. You know, everybody likes, you know, you think, it's, you think you're exaggerating the impact, but you weren't. It really was on everywhere. And I think that was part of the brilliance of the four and a half days, because it didn't come and go. War and Peace producer Milton Hoffman. We took a walk one night. I think it was 57th Street. Kathy Dopkin. I don't know how we had the time, but we took a walk and we went into a bookstore there. 
And we thought we'd see if we could find the signet paper, and there weren't any. So we went up and we asked the clerk. She said, no, they were all sold out. Some radio station was reading War and Peace. They couldn't keep up with it, and they were all sold out. It was things like this. We were given by the Walter Reed, um, is it a foundation? It's not a foundation, company, which um, was, the, the I think, the United States distributor of the Soviet movie War and Peace, which had been produced there two years earlier in 1968 was a huge mammoth Soviet production, took seven years to make, it lasted six or seven hours. And there we are making all our calls, and suddenly, I don't think it was me, somebody gets, gets a call from the Walter Reed Foundation, <clears throat> and it's one of their top guys saying they've been reading about War and Peace, and would we like to have the movie to show for free anytime? It was thing, and of course we said yes. We booked two showings, or one showing at midnight. There was a line around the block at midnight, and it was so popular that, in fact, I think they gave us a second showing. But people came out. Everyone wanted to be a part of this. It sort of took over the city. It's an exaggeration, but it felt like that. We were getting requests from people to read who were BAI enemies, who would never have associated with this little, you know, Connie Pinko faggot lefty radio station. But for War and Peace, everybody put aside their differences because everybody just got high on it. It was a euphoria. And it made us even more brazen in calling anybody and asking them to. So it kind of was like, you know, a cyclone. It just kept picking up speed. And it was extraordinary. It was also a very heady time, and the three of us, like practically everybody at WBAI, were very passionate, not, about, not only about what we did, because we were staffers, except for Francie was a volunteer. We had other work there. We did this sort of on the side, and we were very passionate about WBAI, about its history. We all knew about the ideals of Pacifica from Lou Hill. We were very aware of it. We were living in, as I said, a very heady time, a very scary time in many ways. We had all been there during the, the, the civil rights uh, era and the Vietnam War era. It was a station that, although legally it was not allowed to take a stand, clearly was, uh, was able to broadcast what we felt was important programming about ideas and about issues that mattered. And we were, at the time and, and frequently before and after, we were five, six, up to 22 weeks without pay. Francie, of course, was a volunteer and didn't get paid. How we all made it through almost doesn't matter, but that didn't matter. We loved our jobs there. Even when I was on the switchboard, I was aware of loving this place and feeling so fortunate that I was there. Uh, this is William F. Buckley, Jr., reading pages 923 to 934. From Gorky, Bennickson descended the highway to the bridge that the officer on the knoll had pointed out to Pierre as the center of opposition, and where rows of fragrant new-mown hay lay by the riverside. They crossed the bridge and rode into the village of Borodino, then turned to the left, and passing a tremendous number of men and cannons, came out on a high knoll on which militiamen were at work digging. This was the redoubt, as yet unnamed, that later became known as the Rayevsky Redoubt, or the Knoll Battery. Pierre paid no special attention to this mound. 
He did not know that it was to be for him the most memorable spot you know, on the part whole of, plane of uh, Bernardino. You know, Buckley was um, probably the, was the first conservative, important conservative on public television, and he, we knew where he lived, and uh, he was very interested, and Kathy and I went over to his house, and he, as I think his shirt tail was hanging out too, wasn't it? You know, he wouldn't come to the station. Is that is that right, Kathy? Yes. He he had feelings about coming to the commie pinko faggot station. In fact, we had asked him to do. We used to have commentaries then, fifteen minutes of airtime for people of varying um, uh, opinions on issues, and we had asked him to do a commentary. He wouldn't. But this was art. This was different. So we go to Buckley's house. He was he greeted us at the door. We go upstairs, sitting curled up with his undershirt sticking out beautiful house, a mansion with marble and uh, an extraordinary. He did a wonderful reading. He was very congenial. And then I think Francie remembers this. Because Buckley then sent for his car to take us back, his chauffeured limousine, to take us back to BAI after that. And, and, and Kathy, the, Kathy and Milton were devastated because there was no one outside the station as they pulled up in the limousine to see them. And, the, and they, they, they described this as, where is everybody? You have to see this. We're in William F. Buckley's limousine. And we're coming back, and they come in, where there's this combination of excitement and crestfallen faces as they're telling the story. Who's going to believe us? I said, I believe you. I believe you. He was such a charming old man, and it was so dark in the forest, and he had such a kind... No, I can't describe it, she had said, flushed with emotion. Prince Andrei smiled now the same happy smile as then, when he had looked into her eyes. I understood her, he thought. I not only understood her, but it was just that spiritual force, that sincerity, that open-heartedness, that soul of hers which seemed inseparable from her body, it was that soul I loved in her, love so intensely, so happily. And suddenly, he recalled what it was that had put an end to his love. He cared nothing for all that. He neither saw nor understood anything of the sort. All he saw was a pretty, fresh young girl with whom he did not deign to link his destiny. And I and he is still alive and enjoying life. Uh, the arts programming is part of WBAI, certainly, in that era. <clears throat> and I was drama and literature director during, you know, for a couple of years. And it was a very big part of the life of BAI and not in any way, even though there were these crucially important social issues, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement and so on, but there was a, a whole music department at WB, a, a music department that did everything from live music and all kinds of interesting recording sessions and um, even, you know, War and Peace was clearly a special event, but uh, for years before then, various people had programmed. There were a lot of interesting uh, readings of poetry and uh, fiction and nonfiction on on old vinyl records. We had a whole regular um, program as part of that. 
and I, and there was an, and, and there was in no way um, any sense that it was unimportant. Francie and Kathy and I were talking earlier about Dale Miner, who was maybe one of the most important journalists of the 20th century in terms of his reporting from Vietnam. I mean, this was, but there was also, in even with all of that, there was also very significant attention devoted to the arts because that's what we all thought was important and interesting. And I think it's that that great mix that could make you know, people who were as interested in the Vietnam War and listening to Paul Fisher's newscast stay with us for six or ten hours after the newscast because they were also terribly interested in, in this reading. And I think that's what makes, I think that's what, why we all felt that things were possible is because talented people were doing all kinds of things in all kinds of different ways. There was no one single way, and then and War and Peace stands out as distinct because it was four and a half days, but there were all kinds of other things as well, and they and they really did play into each other. This is Dale Miner. One cannonball, a second, a third flew over him, falling in front, behind, and beside him. Pierre continued to run down the slope. Where am I going? He suddenly asked himself as he neared the green powder wagons. He stopped, uncertain whether to return or go on. All at once a violent concussion flung him backward to the ground. At the same instant there was a blinding flash and a deafening resounding whistle and detonation. When he came to himself he was sitting on the ground leaning on his hands. The powder wagon that had been beside him was gone. Only a few charred green boards and some rags littered the scorched grass, and a horse dragging fragments of its shafts after it galloped by, while another horse lay like Pierre on the ground and uttered prolonged piercing shrieks. Another memorable couple was Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, who were no trouble getting at all because it turned out that War and Peace was Mel Brooks's favorite book, which he says. Of my favorite book. And they came, and again, most of the time I was up on 62nd Street, and they were recording down the studio on 39th Street, but Milton was there. And can you tell us something about their recording Well, sessions? they were, you know, I think uh, they were just very happy. I mean, you know, at, you know, at the end you're doing a job, you're making sure that, you know, they have what they need because these were not ideal circumstances. We were not in the studio to do Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. We were in, we were uh, recording uh, Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft on the 39th Street side of the office. And uh, I remember, apart from his terrific small remarks, uh, she, when, when he was reading, she sat there adoringly, and when he was, and vice versa, they were, they, they were two of the nicest people to deal with, and I think, you know, as we were saying earlier, their readings are also very, very good. I mean, it's, they're, they're very compelling, and obviously she passed away fairly recently. And you look down the list of people, you know, it's a long enough time ago now so that, um, you know, that quite a few people on the list have passed away. Anne Bancroft, pages 1389 to 1401. As in every large household, 
there were several quite distinct worlds at Bald Hills, which, though each preserved its individuality and made concessions to the others, merged into a harmonious whole. Every event, joyful or sad, that occurred in the house was important to all those worlds, yet each had its own special reasons to rejoice or grieve over it, quite apart from the others. Thus, Pierre's return was a joyous, important event affecting them all. Despite all the wonderful readings and the open environment, there were some hiccups, as would be expected with a project this monumental. I'm Angela Parnicky of the WBAI staff, and I'm reading from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, Part 2, Chapters 19 and 20. No matter how good the idea was, how well prepared they were, there were still some things that were out of the control of the producers. On the morning of the second day, a little over eight minutes into WBAI staff member Angela Parnicki's read, the transmitter failed, and the station went off the air. We were off the air for, um, a cable went out, um, and we were off the air for probably an hour or so. Francie Camper. And I guess Bill Schechner was on the board at, at that point, and at the, as we went back on the air, he announced that the previous reading had been done by Marcel Marceau, reflecting really the best of WBAI you know, wit and punting capacity. Despite going off the air, word was certainly spreading. All across the United States and even in other countries, reports were being broadcast about this unique event. I think our first problem... You have some tapes to play over to us, I believe. Aren't they ready, or would you prefer me to do an interview first and come back to them afterwards? Reporter Chris Drake from BBC's The Today Show. This was taken from the rough, pre-edited um, interview. One or two names. Now, your producers? Yes. Uh-huh. We're, we're the people primarily responsible for the fact that this project has been done and now it's going on the air. And it's almost yeah. over. And it's almost over. Some of the press that picked up the story were the New York Daily News, the New York Times, Newsday, Newsweek, The Village Voice, Reuters Wire Service, the Philadelphia Bulletin, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Wall Street Journal, and even the German newspaper Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Did you manage to listen to it? Have you managed to listen to it all so far? Well, we've been, no, we haven't all of it. I haven't heard all of it. Uh, we've stayed up most of the time since it's gone on the air. We've been up with just a few hours sleep each night. And, uh, Kathy? Of course, also in the editing of the tapes, we've managed to hear all of them, yes. Not in any specific <laughs> order. We heard number 163 and number 2 and then number 71. So, uh, and yes. Sorry, I was going to say, uh, and how much tape have you got? How many feet? Or I suppose one should measure it in miles. We have about 200 half-hour tapes. I don't know how many miles this would be, but it's, it would probably go from here to where you are. <laughs> <laughs> there are 1,200 feet in a half-hour reel-to-reel tape and 5,280 feet in a mile. Although it would not actually reach London, the War and Peace recordings would be some 45 and one-half miles long if laid down end-to-end. -end. It really is an amazing accomplishment, but the beauty of it lies in the readings themselves. One of the more beautiful and moving readings was by actor Stacy Keach. Did you do that? He said, pointing to some broken pens and sticks of sealing wax. I loved you, but I'm under orders to Arakchaev and will kill the first one who moves forward. Nikolinka turned to Pierre, but Pierre was no longer there. In his
his place was his father, Prince Andrei. And his father had neither shape nor form, but he existed. And when Nikolinka perceived him, he grew faint with love. He felt himself powerless without bones or substance. His father caressed him and pitied him. But Uncle Nikolai kept coming closer and closer to them, and Nikolinka was seized with horror and woke up. My father, he thought. Though there were two portraits of him in the house, Nikolinka had never visualized Prince Andrei in human form. My father has been with me and caressed me. He approved of me, and he approved of Uncle Pierre. Whatever he may tell me, I will do it. Mucius Skyvola burnt his hand. Why shouldn't something like that happen in my life? I know. They want me to study. And I will study. But someday I will stop, and then I will do something. I ask God for only one thing, that something will happen to me, such as happened to the men in Plutarch. And I will do as they did. I will do better. Everyone shall know of me and they shall all love and admire me. And all at once, Nikolinka felt his breast heave with sobs, and he started to cry. Et vous and dispose. He heard de Saul's voice. No, replied Nikolinka. And he lay back on his pillow. He is good and kind, and I'm fond of him, he thought of Dessault. But Uncle Pierre, oh, what a wonderful man. And my father, oh, father, father. Yes, I will do something that even he would be satisfied with. This has been Stacy Keach. Epilogue, chapters 15 and 16. I'm Helen Thomas, and I'm about to read excerpts from chapter 19 of Tolstoy's War and Peace. That's a fine death, said Napoleon, gazing at Volkonsky. Prince Andrei realized that this was said of him, and that it was Napoleon who said it. He heard the speaker of these words addressed as sire but he heard the words as he might have heard the buzzing of a fly. Not only did they not interest him, but he took no notice of them, instantly forgot them. His head was burning. He felt he was losing blood and saw above him the remote, lofty, eternal heavens. He knew that it was Napoleon, his hero, but at that moment Napoleon seemed to him such a small, insignificant creature compared with what was taking place between his soul and that lofty, infinite sky with the clouds sailing over it. At that moment, it meant absolutely nothing to him 
who might be standing over him or what might be said of him. He was only glad there were people there, only wished that they could help him and bring him back to life, which seemed to him so beautiful now that he understood it differently. He made a supreme effort to stir and utter a sound. He feebly moved his leg and produced a faint, sickly moan that roused his own pity. Ah, he is alive, said Napoleon. Pick up this young man and bring him to the dressing station. I was profoundly moved by that chapter because it really seemed to personify the whole book in terms of what it was all about. Uh, in the end, what is significant, what is important, family, the blue skies, eternity, and uh, not the, the Napoleon and so forth, the leaders who, who make and break our lives. This is Sean Michael Howard. I'm reading pages 419 to 422. Vasily Dmitrik, I thank you for the honor you do us, she said in an embarrassed voice, which to Denisov sounded severe. But... My daughter is so young, and I should have thought that as my son's friend, you would have addressed yourself to me first. In that case, you would not have obliged me to give this refusal. Countess, began Denisov, with downcast eyes and a guilty face. He tried to say something more, but faltered. Natasha could not see him in such a plight and remain calm, she began to sob loudly. Countess, I have done wrong. Denisov went on in an unsteady voice, but believe me, I so adore your daughter and all your family that I would give my life twice over. He looked at the countess and seeing her stern face said, Well, goodbye, countess. And kissing her hand, left the room with swift, resolute strides, without looking at Natasha. The following day, Rostov saw Denisov off. As he did not wish to remain another day in Moscow, all his Moscow friends gave him a farewell party at the Gypsies, and he had had no recollection of how they got him into the sledge or of the first three stages of his journey. This is Fay Ray. Book 2, Part 3, Chapters 13, 14, 15. One night when the old countess, in her nightcap and peignoir, without her false curls, and with only her poor little knob of hair showing under the white calico cap, knelt sighing and groaning on a rug and bowing to the floor in prayer, her door creaked and Natasha, also in a peignoir, her bare feet in slippers, and her hair in curl papers, ran in. The countess looked up and frowned. She was finishing her last prayer. And if this bed should be my beer? Her devotional mood was dispelled. Natasha, flushed and eager, stopped suddenly when she saw her mother in prayer, made a little curtsy, and unconsciously put out her tongue, as if chiding herself. Seeing that her mother was going on with her prayers, she ran on tiptoe to the bed, 
pushed off her slippers by sliding one little foot against the other and sprang onto that bed the countess feared might become her beer. It was a high feather bed with five pillows each side. That was the War and Peace broadcast, 35 years later, produced by Brian DeShazer and Christopher Sprinkle. Brian is the director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. For more information about the broadcast, including a full list of readers, pictures of a very young Dustin Hoffman, and a few pictures of Alexandra Tolstoy, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Oh, it sounds like it would be the most phenomenal book in the universe, but I'm telling you, the size of it is a little daunting. I've considered it, but it's way too long to read. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcasts. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.